Good afternoon and welcome to today's activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. If you have a question for the presenters, please enter it in the Q&A bubble and we'll ask at the end of the presentation. The evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of your screen. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speakers. We have Dr. Austin, who received a BS in chemistry from the State University of New York at Albany and received his MD from New York University School of Medicine. He completed a primary care internal medicine residency at NYU Bellevue Hospital and was the chief resident of the primary care internal medicine program. Dr. Austin joined NGHS in August of 2021 as the system medical director of hospital medicine. Prior to that, he was the medical director of the hospitalist service at Gwinnett Medical Center, later Northside Gwinnett and Northside Duluth for 22 years. We also have Dr. Vermuri, who graduated medical school from AMC India, his medical degree in neurology from DMC WSU Detroit, Medical University of South Carolina is where he completed his neurophysiology in the epilepsy track fellowship. Dr. Vimuri joined NGHS as a neurohospitalist in January 2022 after practicing for three years in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Join me in welcoming our speakers. Thanks very much. I hope you all can uh, hear me. Uh, I'm Marty Austin. Um, and I'm really pleased that Dr. Vermuri agreed to join us. Um, just um, uh, we, we're going to try to continue with these case presentations through um, the remainder of the year. It's actually something we're going to be involving um, the GME program with uh, more as well. And hopefully um, you guys will come up with more interesting cases that we can present and, um, and discuss. So um, we titled the first of these, or uh, this particular one, case presentation, which I thought was very, um, very inventive. Um, and we'll start off with the case. So this is actually a patient that I uh, saw in the hospital. He was a 69-year-old fellow. He had a history of recently diagnosed, quote, early stage tongue cancer, but otherwise really didn't have much past medical history. And he came into the emergency room with seizures. In the ED, he got Ativan and uh, Levetiracetam or Keppra, but he continued to have twitching. He developed hypotension, hypoxia, and was aggressively hydrated, ended up intubated and on Levofed. Um, he takes no medications, doesn't smoke, use street drugs, or drink any alcohol. Um, when he was seen on physical exam, he was intubated and sedated. Cranial nerves were noted to be intact as best as could be conducted uh, on an exam in a patient in this condition, and he withdrew from painful stimuli. The remainder of the exam was normal. His initial labs showed a white blood count of 14.1. CO2, or bicarb in the blood, was 10, creatinine 1.89, glucose 181. Uh, creatinine phosphokinase, procalcitonin, CRP, ESR, normal. Arterial blood gas showed a metabolic acidosis with a pH uh, of um, less than 6.8, a pCO2 of 73.9, so possibly a mixed acidosis, a PO2 of 254, and a lactate of 20. Urine tox screen was positive for benzodiazepines, presumably from what he was given in the emergency room, and an initial EEG was normal. So we got, we're going to ask Dr. Vimori as our consultant uh, some questions. So um, the first thing we're going to ask is I'm going to go a little bit in uh, backwards order, starting with the most important part is like, so this guy comes in and we think he's had this loss of consciousness. So is this a seizure? So I was just wondering if Dr. Vimori could tell us, like, what does a seizure look like? How can we tell, what would make us think this is a seizure? What might make us think it's not a seizure, some other form of loss of consciousness, or a pseudo-seizure, potentially? So from this, what we got, so let's answer the first question. Does initial labs give us any useful information? Uh, yes, you said some acidosis. So that means, uh, is CPK, was it elevated slightly? Lactic acid do we have? Lactic acid was 20. 
Okay, so that gives us probably this is a seizure, tonic-clonic activity that from the muscle breakdown, that's where we get the lactic acidosis. So the important question to answer here is, does the patient have history of seizures? If the patient have a history of seizures, then this may not be a new onset seizure, but seems like this never had a history, so this let's consider this as a new onset seizure. Um, I know this guy, so he was admitted directly to MICU, so history was always limited. So even if we think this is a new onset seizure, the next question to answer, why do we treat it, right? So two things. Um, yeah. It seems like he had like couple seizures and possibly he was in status. So if, if, if the clinical suspicion is high, if he's having multiple seizures, even though it is provoked, we still treat it. So that's when uh, we loaded with Kepra at this point. And uh, yeah, so I'm not sure whether he was an alcoholic. Again, same thing, even if the alcohol-related uh, withdrawal seizures, if an isolated seizure, we don't. If they are in a SIVA protocol, but if they are in status, we should. So now the third question, what does a seizure look like? Can it distinguish from a pseudo-seizure? Yes. Mostly if we witness them from a clinical exam standpoint of view, we can sometimes, but not all the time. So what are the things that will give away for a pseudo-seizure? They'll be, most of the times, eyes will be closed. They'll have non-rhythmic movements, and the post-event confusion won't be like prolonged. So. Those are the main distinguishing features, and also if there won't be having any uh, pre-episodic aura or warning signs, and uh, not the post-event confusion is also won't be long time. But there are so many seizure types. Uh, we can go over it as we go on, but um, there can be uh, focal motor seizures. In that say, in that case, doesn't have to involve the level of consciousness. So yeah. I guess I answered all the questions. If you have any questions at this point, you can ask. Okay. Right. So we're looking for the rhythmic motions, postictal confusion if there's a loss of consciousness. And of course, the one most of them evident to know is the tongue bites, loss of bladder, all that. So right. Those Always look look at the mouth. Um, what if the patient had come in and they had had a single seizure um, and they seemed otherwise relatively well? Maybe you don't know the cause and now they're in the ER, uh, you've been called to admit the patient and in the ER eating a sandwich. Do we have to admit that patient? So that's a very good question. So in the absence of any provoked in the labs or anything, if the CT scan is normal and the labs are normal, for a new onset seizure, the alcohol is normal, no drugs. Yes, we need to do a initial workup, at least an MRI and an EEG. So. Isolated seizures we don't have to treat unless if the MR and EEG are, if they are positive, even though if it is isolated, we still would treat it. Either if it's a mass lesion in an MRI or if there is any hyperintensities or infectious process or an EEG, if it is abnormal, we should still treat it. For that reason, yes, we should do an MR and an EEG uh, for and we admit that patient. And we can admit to an observation and quickly do an MR and an EEG, but we still need it. And of course, if there is a suspicion of any fever, then we are even thinking of doing a spinal tap. That's a recommendation as well. Okay. Thank you. So, so we do admit. I, I was used to not admitting them in the past and doing most of that workup as an outpatient, but uh, understood. But again, if it plays different, we have a waiting period of like four or five months in a neuro outpatient setting. Right. So if we could arrange them for a week, uh, like to get an MRI and an EEG, I guess we could do that as well. But yeah. Very good. Thank you. Mm. And and um, just briefly, what is a seizure? I mean, like, they, can you tell? the definition of a seizure, just a seizure in general? Like so, there are so many definitions. If you talk about the neurophysiological definition, it's an abnormal electrical activity that can cause uh, impulses to act on a cortex and can cause uh, cerebral cortex and can cause this uh, a seizure, like a seizure, which is, again, as I said, so many uh, types of seizures. It can range from a simple, so the, pa the definitions have changed and the nomenclature have changed. You used to call a simple partial, complex partial, they are all gone. Now we call it as a focal 
aware seizures and focal seizures with loss of consciousness and focal motor seizures, and of course, a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Everyone, everything is different. Uh, depending on, uh, again, epilepsy is different. If it is a focal epilepsy, generalized epilepsy, if the seizure originating focus is in one area of the brain, it can present in a different way. If it's in a, just in a motor cortex on the left side, patient just will have a right arm jerking. That is a seizure. So if it is, and if it, that progresses and generalizes, it will have a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So, so many definitions, yes. Thanks. Thank you. I've just learned that I'm hopelessly behind in what I call seizures. So I'm making, a, I'm making mistakes every day talking about uh, generalized seizures and things. Um, so here's the initial um, MRI scan. So what are we seeing here? So, yeah, here we look at this is a coronal section. Uh, this is a temporal lobe. This is the mesial temporal lobe. We call it the hippocampus. If you see that on both sides, there's an increased signal there. That's what we call is an increased hyper in an MRI. Um, it doesn't tell us in terms of etiology-wise, but it can clearly say that could be the reason why he's having seizures or the other way around. So let's say a patient who has a history of seizures, sometimes if they have a left temporal epilepsy. Then if we do an MRI after patient comes in with a status epilepticus, we see those changes too. It doesn't tell us a lot, but, but it can tell us that the MRI is abnormal, uh, very wide differential at this point. So the seizure itself could cause those abnormalities to appear. It's not a sign necessarily of underlying pathology that yes. caused the seizure. Mm -hmm. OK. Interesting. It's increased metabolism in that area, increased electrical activity, seizure. So sometimes the status epilepticus MRIs can be like that. Interesting. Even when we had this case, I thought that was a sign. I, I thought that was an underlying abnormality on the brain. So my first thing after I saw that, I was uh, giving uh, him benefit of doubt that his it is the status epilepticus related uh, MRI changes. Okay. And and also the fact that his EEG is normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, oops, I went the wrong way. Sorry. So I just threw this in. This is just if you want to get an idea about um, what the, uh, the anatomy was there. Um, so you can see where the temporal lobe is. Um, and we were talking about the mesial temporal lobe. And I always love to say Sylvie and Fisher because it makes you sound really smart there, that, that Fisher between um, the uh, temporal and um, uh, lobe and the re remainder of the brain um, su superior to it. Um, so just, just for your amusement and edification, um, so, um, what are we thinking about as, a, as far as a differential diagnosis of the cause of a seizure in a 69-year-old guy with no history and, and no use of drugs or withdrawal? That's right. So, again, as I said, the status epilepticus from a known history of a seizure patient can give that. And uh, infectious process, most of the viral infections can have predilections to the mesial temporal lobe because of the direct invasion where they go through the uh, cribriform plate, olfactory bulb, and then close to the limbic system, which is a thalamus, hypothalamus, and the uh, mesial temporal lobe. And of course, the limbic encephalitis, which is an autoimmune encephalitis, can uh, cause uh, mesial temporal uh, hyperintensity. And uh, yeah, mostly encephalitis, paraneoplastic, it could be autoimmune, it could be infectious. Infectious is just a wide range. It could be viral, mostly viral. H HSV can give that, but with HSV, you do expect sometimes uh, bleeding in that region, which uh, we didn't see in that. So yeah, infectious, neoplastic, inflammatory, just from status epilepticus itself. Those four are my biggest differentials at this point. Um, vascular, less likely. Um, yeah, that's, that's ruled out so far. Okay. Um, and I guess if he didn't have those findings, I mean, we might have seen a tumor, which could have right. could have caused it, but we didn't see one. Yeah, and, and when I said paraneoplastic, it's not the neoplasm in the brain, but it could be anywhere else manifesting uh, manifestation as a neuro findings. Yeah. Um, 
then I know that another potential causes some prior trauma or right yeah. that we could we might not see that on the MRI but in this case with that right I guess it's still trauma I would cause. expect more changes in the other sequences unfortunately we didn't have all of those but that's the positive thing that we had but no other uh, traumatic uh, related uh, scar tissues or anywhere in the brain even in the temporal region there is no scar tissue which I would expect for a patient who had a trauma so trauma is ruled out vascular stuff is ruled out so far at this point, is there anything else that we would order? I know we're going to go over more results later, but is there anything else you'd say, hey, we ought to order this, or we ought to ask about something else in the history or additional imaging? So uh, infectious, we throw in there. So definitely a spinal tap to look for uh, all the routine labs and all the viral panel and the meningitis encephalitis panel at this point. Because the EEG is normal, just put him on Keppra and do a uh, spinal tap. Okay. And because we're all going to come out of here looking really smart when we see a patient like this, like I hear that all the time, like they, you know, we say, now we're, now we're learning about like saying, you know, they have a focal aware or uh, right. these and types of seizures, focal unaware. What about... Um, and because the infectious process is still there, I would treat temporarily. Cycloware, although mostly viral, but we still cover with the bacterial uh, uh, as well, bacterial antibiotics as well. Okay, so viral... Until we rule out uh, bacterial meningitis, yes. Okay. Um, and again, you wouldn't necessarily tap every single patient who had a seizure who comes no. in. We're talking about a guy this sick. Yes, sick, with, yeah. MRI findings, yes. So um, the other thing I was going to ask you is a lot of times people throw around these terms. So they say they have meningitis, they say they have encephalitis, they say meningoencephalitis, so that we can impress our attendings. Like, what do we... What do we, uh, what do, what do, how we, what's the difference? How can we look at somebody maybe clinically or otherwise and say this is meningitis or encephalitis or meningoencephalitis? So, you know, encephalitis, the term itself is uh, the, it's just more of a, is the level of consciousness affecting from the meningeal irritation. Not all meningitis can have encephalitis. There can be a mild viral uh, meningitis where they'll have some uh, fever, but their, uh, their mental status is normal and without any other focal findings that is meningitis. And if, as, as long as there is a involvement of a uh, mental status, meningoencephalitis. Okay, so yeah. the mental status, you could, you could be kind of lethargic or yeah. comatose from a meningitis right. potentially, but the encephalitis is, causes the really strange behaviors and stuff right. like that, right? Uh -huh. So somebody who's acting psychotic or something, right, exactly. you would start suspecting encephalitis, yeah. right? Okay, yeah, which would mean brain infection yeah. directly or uh -huh. brain irritation, yeah. I guess, as opposed to the meninges. Meninges, and... yeah. Okay, good. So lactic acid normalizes and the patient's no longer acidotic. And there's this initial um, CSF result. So there's two white cells, the protein is elevated and the glucose is normal. Does that like crack this case wide open? Do we know exactly what's going on now? Um, not at this point, but at least we can rule out uh, bacterial and fungal uh, meningitis at this point. Okay, so we can't but rule protein, out viral. High, yeah, elevated protein is high, so nonspecific, it can be seen in, uh, infectious inflammatory process. Can you see it just from having a seizure without having, uh, you know, without having any underlying uh -huh. yeah. other... Even diabetes with the higher glucose levels can have it. Okay, so that level of protein elevation doesn't really help us. It's mostly saying it's probably not bacterial. Mm -hmm. Okie doke. At this point, we can uh, discontinue antibiotics. I mean, the bacterial, the vancomycin and the cefepine. But you'd continue, continue so vancomycin and cefepime for presumed bacterial, bacterial meningitis, yes. continue the acyclovir. Yes. Okay. So he's extubated after about 36 hours, and transfer notes say he's alert and oriented to person, place, and time with a Glasgow coma score of 15, which is pretty good, and impaired recent memory. A neurologist exam notes mostly normal exam with the following exceptions. So there's three out of three objects are recalled with registration. Zero out of three objects recalled with immediate and delayed recall. So what does that mean, registration and immediate uh, and delayed recall? So that's a better way to test their mental status. We do a MOCA in, in dementia and also quick ways to do in an inpatient setting as well. So, so that's testing a memory part of it. 
So registration, if you have, if you gave him three names, he would quickly get back to you. And if you ask the same thing in like two minutes later, he had no clue, especially in his case. So, but he, he was with it. He knows what's going on. He had family members next to them, next to him, and he answers everything appropriately. Two minutes later, oh, I had a seizure. Oh, for how long I've been in the hospital for? Same question again and again, multiple times, 50 to 100 times a day. In fact, he called, he used to call his wife uh, at night, like 30, 40 times a night, asking her to why am I here? And can you just uh, get me out of here? So he has severe anterograde as well as retrograde amnesia, mostly anterograde because he has this registration, but he couldn't retrieve any of it, what it was said. Uh, retrograde, he had some. I think you also asked a few questions where he couldn't remember the current president was and all. So, yeah, so that's where. Otherwise, no non focal exam. Uh, yeah, no fevers. Yeah, anything to add? From so this guy kind of looked like if you said to him, can you remember a ball, a cat, and a tree? Can you say that? He'd say a ball, a cat, and a tree. He'd say, how old are you? He'd say, I'm 69. He'd say, can you remember those three objects? He'd say, what no. three objects? Yeah. He couldn't even remember that you asked him the three Thanks. objects. And I, I can tell you, it was exhausting being in the room for like a minute with this guy. Like, And the other thing he did was he confabulated um, meaning that he would make stuff up. Like he was constantly asking me if we had treated patients together. He was a chiropractor. So I would constantly tell him no, and then he would ask me, as I was leaving, I'd say goodbye, and he would ask me the same question again. It was difficult to get out the room, too. Nice guy, though. Um, um, so um, any, anything else you wanted to speak about from the exam or suggested so next steps? So that exam threw us off because that's been 24 hours into the ICU and then onto the floor course. I would expect uh, that all the sedation should wear off and you should have a near normal uh, baseline exam. And so I think uh, then uh, we decided to put him on a continuous EEG, thinking what's exactly going on and I wanna closely look at the temporal lobes given the background that the MRI was abnormal. Mm -hmm. Then the continuous EEG was put in. Okay, so continuous EEG to see what's going on because of this um, loss of memory and unusual um, mental status. So just to show you that we're dealing with the most up-to-date information, we're going to pay a, a tribute to the late Queen Elizabeth. So you guys can call out if anybody knows the answer or we'll ask Dr. Vimuri. So which of the following is a true fact about Queen Elizabeth? A, she liked to drive but never held a license. B, her morning alarm clock was a live bagpipe player. C, she drank a gin and Dubonnet cocktail every morning. D, she, brought her, she bought her wedding dress using rationing coupons after World War II. Or E, she served in the Army as a mechanic during World War II. Actually, they're all true. Yeah. They're all true. And the queen often had more than one drink a day, but always had a, a gin and Dubonnet in the, every morning. That's how she woke up. Um, but uh, those are all true. And the queen did not have to have a license or, um, even though she could drive, she was not required to have a license or a license plate. And she apparently she liked to put on sunglasses and drive a Jag. All right. So I've always been convinced that these are actually somebody's ch child drawing pictures. Um, you know, people look at these squiggles and they try to pretend. I remember in the old days, I used to say, I know what it's going to show. It's going to show slowing. You're going to tell me, yeah, the EEG shows slowing. And, and you know, because everybody's confused and they all had slowing. But this is actually, we got information from this EEG. So I was wondering, I mean, this stuff, I mean, honestly, to a non-neurologist, it just, it just looks like, Somebody gave a two-year-old uh, colored pens. But um, can you um, yeah. uh, so tell us what we're seeing here? On the left, that's a routine EEG. That's how for a routine EEG should have the... So the white, the white one, for those of you who can't yeah, see. So these are the one, the eye blinks. That means they're awake. You can just tell them based on the EEG what they're doing. We, we can't hear you out here. That's fine. So on the left, the, I see the troughs that you're seeing. That those are the blinks. eye blinks. That means they are awake. So that's important for us. It's okay. Yeah, that's important for us. Uh, what 
state we are doing the EEG on, so that will be helpful. And while the, the patient are awake, the background is important. In the, in you see the T6O2s and the P3O2s, all that. That's the posterior fossa where we have a rhythmic background. If it is in alpha, which is 8 to 12 hertz, that means they're normal. So, of course, if it is less than 8, we call it as a background slowing, as you said. But now, on the right side, this is where the EEG gets interesting. So, just for, uh, just for a quick update, the, all the blues are left side of the brain, the, the reds are the right side of the brain. So, F is frontal, T is temporal, C is central, P is parietal. So if you look at that, it's in the frontocentral and the temporal region on the left, there's a rhythmic uh, activity there. And of course, we couldn't get the whole uh, slide in, but uh, it's clearly rhythmic and it's spread to the right side. That, those are the focal seizures. It was not clear in this slide whether it is a focal or not, but it was clearly at the beginning, it started with the left temporal and slowly progressed to involve the other side as well. So that's uh, electrographic seizures because clinically he's not doing anything. He just sits in there, eats and all. So that means there is no clinical seizure. That's why it's called as an electrographic seizures. If the seizure is both clinical and EEG, we call it as an electroclinical seizures. So he did have multiple seizures, brief 15 to 20 seconds, uh, four to five per hour as soon as we start the continuous EEG. So, so is it, so are these the, is yeah. that the seizures there? Mm -hmm. Okay. So those, the, so you've, um, you've completely uh, given me faith in the EEG again. Uh, so, so, so again, we cannot just go by the one slide. The neurophysiological definition is it has to be evolve the frequency amplitude. So they'll be starting like in a slow amplitude and then the amplitude gets bigger or the frequency it starts with an uh, beta or theta, which is a slow and then goes to alpha, that has to be evolved to call it as a seizure, so. Okay, so this guy is, a, so that's an important, this guy who's sitting there talking to us but confused is actually having these little seizures in the background, but, they, but he's talking to us and he's conscious during this time, but, but it's affecting his mentation. So it's in, very interesting to me. Um, so the continuous EEG showed the focal seizures arises, arising from the left temporal re, uh, region. Um, he was given additional Ativan and Keppra and Vimpat was started. Yeah. And he's alert but disoriented and again, he's conscious. Yeah, the Vimpat we loaded after the EEG. Yeah. So we continued both Keppra and Vimpat. Um, so how does this clinical picture fit the EEG findings? Is there anything more to say about that? or? Um, the next just step, tells the us that he's having focal seizures coming from the left side, which is evident in the MRI as well. That's we can go back and say, hey, maybe these left temporal changes are because that he's having seizures from that region. And does that does that would you, if you had said if they had said this guy is having some sort of folk, uh, focal seizures, um, would you have guessed it was temporal lobe based on the way he was acting? Was yes, because, because of the memory involvement. Okay. Yeah, if, if you take the MRI out just by clinical picture, and if you have an EEG and they have seizures and the memory is involved, I think it's temporal. Yeah. Okay. And temporal lobe's like a really, it's one of the parts of the brain that's more prone to more prone to have epilepsy. Ad yes. abnormalities, right? Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to say about the differential or the next steps? Uh, so I think at this point, we're still waiting for the meningitis encephalitis panel and the HSV. Until then, we'll treat the Keppra impact. Okay. Um, so his meningitis encephalitis panel is negative. His HSV, including PCR, was negative. Cryptococcal antigen was negative. Borrelia burgdorferi, which is Lyme disease, right, is, yeah. is negative. CSF autoimmune panel is negative. CSF alpha fetoprotein is negative. CSF angiotensin converting enzyme is normal. Uh, CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis uh, is without mass, and um, we went and called infectious disease. So what are all these it's, tests yeah. telling you, and why, why, were, why would we do all this? At this point, I, so the autoimmune panel usually takes like a week to come back. 
uh, as soon as we saw the HSV being negative and the meningitis encephalitis panel is negative, we expanded our differential. Then our suspicion for the autoimmune process was uh, high at this point, autoimmune or paraneoplastic. Then we started uh, treating with uh, steroids. Mm -hmm. So afterwards, the autoimmune panel came back negative after a week or so. But um, the CSFAs, yeah, and because the paraneoplastic was still in the differential, we decided to do a CT abdomen pelvis. Right. So and also there's a history of some tongue cancer. So, so we're looking for a tumor that could cause a paraneoplastic syndrome that could cause this, elsewhere in the body but not in the brain. So what does the CSF alpha fetoprotein mean? Uh, CSF alpha, guys, can you help me out here? Uh, alpha fetoprotein. Dr. Markandaya, do you have? Oh, yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's part of yeah. paraneoplastic for yeah. even in the CSF, huh? Oh, um, so, we, uh, well, I mean, go, go ahead, Dr. Vimori. So, so, yeah, the CA19s and the AFPs, all that we do from a serums to see the, if there's any cancer anywhere. Uh, the CSF alpha protein is also part of the paraneoplastic panel. There are so many antibodies. It's a big, like 25 antibodies we send in that panel. Anti-HU, anti-TA, YO, GAD, NMDA, AMPA. These are all the antibodies which can be positive in a, in a cancer of somewhere else in the body. And the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, is that for uh, sarcoidosis? Sarcoidosis, because inflammatory... Uh, Diagnosis still within the differential, yeah. Okay, so um, so so it, uh, I don't know how accurate that is. I know it's kind of like even peripherally, it's not super. Yeah, it's not a hundred percent, but I guess it give you a hint if it was really yeah. high. Mm -hmm. um, so anybody who hasn't been told the diagnosis, anybody have a stab yet at what this could be? Question here. Yeah. Mesodial sclerosis or with the hyper um, enhancement there. So I'm not sure about, but those are all the paraneoplastic antibodies or the that you mentioned. How about this? Something I remember when I was a resident is the um, potassium channel things. This yes. is also yes. part of paraneoplastic or it is autoimmune slash paraneoplastic band. There's VGCC. There's yeah. LGI, there's mm -hmm. NMDA, these are all channelopathies okay. with the potassium channel antibodies. Those are all part of the panel where we send to Mayo Clinic. It's a, it's a uh, big epilepsy autoimmune panel. Yeah, to answer your question, so yeah, so MTS is different. MTS okay. is a mesial temporal sclerosis where we see kind of a, a scar tissue and the atrophy in the okay. hippocampus and okay. it's mostly uh, unilateral and okay. it's different from the other side. Here what we are seeing is more of a Bilateral. increased signal okay. rather than uh, sclerosis. And uh, you decide to treat the steroid based on paraneoplastic is different? Because our differential is autoimmune slash paraneoplastic encephalitis. So the reason for treating the steroids is we have to understand the pathophysiology behind it. So as you know, autoimmune, right? Even if it is, a, at this point, even if it is a viral, the, what is the mode of attacking the virus to the brain? Either it's a direct invasion or the other thing is uh, systemic inflammation. So that's obviously an inflammatory pathway, like, like uh, increased cytokine, storm, all that. So we do steroids even for uh, uh, autoimmune, paraneoplastic, and some sometimes infectious too. Okay, thank you. But I don't think it was enhancing. I don't think it was contrast enhancing. It's more of a T2 hyperintensity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for for the auto for the MRI. No, and I'm. Uh, Mesial temporal? Uh -huh. No, no temporal sclerosis won't enhance because okay. it's not a neoplastic process. Even in the infectious inflammatory process, sometimes they don't enhance. Yeah. Okay. So moving on, he was given IV solumedrol, the big guns, the one gram daily, continued on his Vimpat, Kepra, and Acyclovir. His EEG showed improvement with bilateral independent intermittent temporal slowing. So we're back to slowing. Yeah. There's always slowing. Um, but that no means seizures. at least there's improvement. No seizures coming from that. Right, so. but he's slow. So he got tapped again. So this guy, this guy was getting everything in doubles. 
Uh, he got another uh, tap that showed a protein of 97.1, so it's up a little bit. Glucose was 101. The number of white cells was up to 21. And uh, it was blood tinged, but there were 2,000 RBCs. Um, and then the meningitis panel, autoimmune encephalitis panel were repeated, still negative. HSV PCR times two now still negative. And now we got back also arbovirus, antibody, West Nile virus, and cultures were negative, and he was HIV negative. So the reason for the reason for repeating the tap at this point is by this time autoimmune encephalitis panel came back negative after I think three days to five days of solumedrol. So Siddharth's were now we can lower the differential, still looking at the infectious process. And the reason for repeating the spinal tap and reason for HSV PCR is so there it can be so many false negatives for the HSV PCR if we do it in early in the course, like day one, day two. So from infectious disease guidelines as well, we uh, recommend repeating it between three to seven days if the clinical suspicion is high. That's the reason for repeat, repeating the tap. Okay. And uh, yeah, so after the panel came back negative, we stopped steroids. Uh, of course, there are other options where we can talk later. Uh, what are the treatment options for the autoimmune encephalitis? But at this point, clinically, he didn't improve, but electrographically, seizures got better. So we just continued Vimpad and Kepra at this point and Acyclovir and waiting for the repeat tap. And this was still a guy who you went to the bathroom before you went in the room because you'd be in there for a while because he would keep asking the same questions. Um, the arbovirus, what is, I, yeah. I think we know West Nile virus and yeah. that often causes that kind of flaccid paralysis. Or any viral panel that we could get hold of, we just threw it everywhere. That one also causes, yeah. And yeah. If, if the viruses were positive, would you still use the salumedrol to try to, because no. they're still showing inflammation in the CSF, right? Because we've got, would we, is there a reason to continue salumedrol? No, Once you see this, you just stop. I would stop because EEG improved, so. Right. Okay, if the EEG, if, but, but it was worth it still to do even with this because the virus could have been causing inflammation. Yeah, I, yeah. Okay. So we already asked that what's with all the labs, the EEG is abnormal, so they're slowing, so something's not working right, and, um, but it doesn't show seizures. And uh, we, use the, we discussed why we use the high-dose salumedrol, and um, we discussed that we were still treating with acyclovir just in case because, you, you, you know, it's our chance to treat something even if... The first one may also have been there negative. are case reports where it can be positive even after 15 to 25 days into the course especially if the clinical suspicion is high would rather treat with a cyclover and right. there, because that's a treatable cause mm -hmm. patients get better with the cyclover right. and if you don't get treated there, there's a chance that they can get worse and they have cases where autopsies finding the HSV PCR becoming positives so right you don't want to find that on autopsy yeah Right, that's always bad. Any any other points that you want to make on any of these, or? Um, no. Okay. So just a little comic relief. The usual, the, the the guidelines change even, so sometimes if you wait long enough, you don't have to go on a diet. The guidelines will change and you'll be normal. Um, so he continued to have very poor short-term memory, but gradually improved and was relatively intact about two weeks after admission. Um, and um, I got to tell you, there was one really funny thing that this guy did. He, he, his wife says to, and I thought this was very unusual because the way I understand the way memories are laid down, like you can have anterograde and retrograde amnesia, but usually, you know, people don't have, you know, it's usually like retrograde, like a, maybe a week, Best. you know? Yeah. I mean, this guy couldn't remember that he had gone on vacation with his wife in May. And um, he also told me, um, his wife told me, you know, he doesn't remember any of the presidents after Obama. And I said to him, do you know who the president is now? And he goes, yeah, it's Joe Biden. And he says, the only reason I know that, though, is because somebody told me it was Joe Biden. And then he said, I have to ask you a question. And he says, somebody told me this, and no matter how you felt politically, this was kind of funny. He says, I'm not sure if I believe it, but is it true that Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And it just seemed like such an odd thing as if like you woke up later and they said, hey, you know, Justin Bieber was president. You know, it's like you probably go like, are you, are you kidding? So anyway, he, he, he just, he, he still didn't believe it after people told him that. Um, 
but anyway, he was uh, he was relatively intact except for that. And again, I thought that was kind of weird that he could that he had like you know this like an eight year memory loss seemed like really weird yeah, to me so because that, usually that's already set in your brain, right? right? Limbic system, hippocampus, yeah. so much inflamed. So yeah, so but he could remember my name day to day and stuff. And he stopped asking the same question over and over again. Um, and then about ten days later, his wife said, "Hey, you know, he had a flu like illness one week before admission." And he, she said, why don't you do a COVID test on him? He had been vaccinated and boosted and his COVID swab was positive. So, you know, at this point we were saying like, COVID? Really? Like, you know, are you kidding me? And like, is everything COVID? Is it like everything that comes in the ER is gonna turn out to be COVID? So, you know, this was like one of those like great big, like, are you kidding me? So um, I know you're gonna uh, talk about this. So is that just a is that just a um, like a coincidence? But it turns out this is a, a real thing. So it's I don't know if you want to comment on less it. Less than 02 percent of the times, but the COVID encephalitis is real, um, with or without hospitalization, with or without respiratory involvement. There were so many actually uh, meta analysis done on that, not just the case series and the observational evidence. So it's uh, COVID encephalitis is real. But um, there's, it can be, it can vary from mild to severe. It's almost can have a necrotizing hemorrhagic encephalitis where obviously the prognosis is poor. But COVID, COVID is uh, no, known to cause encephalitis. Yes, by saying that, how sh why are you so sure, right? So there were centers where they test uh, COVID, like uh, SARS to uh, PCR in CSF. Those were positive. This I didn't realize after, because it must have been too late in his course, but afterwards came to realize we could even do that in our hospital as well. From Dr. Manepali told me from ID here. Oh, she told me they send them out sometimes and they never get an answer back. Yeah, but. so so that's for the future. If we suspect, if everything is out, and if we still suspect viral, we, that's an option. We could send a COVID PCR from CSF. So yeah, interesting. So so there's and you had told me there's two flavors of this, right? There's like direct like infection, yeah, so like yeah, you said, exactly. the hemorrhagic, the, and then there's also kind of an autoimmune right. or an immune type. It's the same process of it's causing anosmia, right? So it's a direct invasion to through the cribriform plate, olfactory bulb, and to the mesial lo temporal lobes, all that, or the systemic inflammation. Uh, where the inflammatory pathway cytokines and all are high, that's why we treat with steroids. So those are two of the two main uh, ways how it can affect neurological manifestations in COVID. So interesting. Yeah. So this guy was also yeah, like he had been boosted and everything, and he still got this. And it's, uh, I mean, and that was scary to me too when I found out that the anosmia that people can't smell, it's actually it's like messing with your brain. It's actually damaging your olfactory lobe of your brain, not just like I'm stuffy. Yeah, so yeah, kind of scary. Um, and that was just a few of the things that I noted from this thing. You can have mild nervous agitation to severe encephalitis. We talked about autoimmune or viral. Pooled mortality rate, probably mostly in the people who have that kind of hemorrhagic encephalitis was about 13.4%, but it's not a lot of cases. Um, and they can show encephalitis weeks after the onset of symptoms or have symptoms at the same time. Um, and then the most common symptoms were altered mental status, um, decreased consciousness or coma, and seizure. And um, different ways to treat patients, modern, modern medicine. So any questions? I didn't realize that the animated GIF would work in here. I thought it was, I was just capturing the still, but that's making me kind of nauseous, so I'm going to just... But um, so anyway, I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Does anybody, are there any questions? Yes, hold on. Oh. That was a great presentation. I just wanted to add a comment. Um, when COVID, initially in the pandemic, we had some local labs that were helping us get CSF tested. We actually had a case we suspected necrotizing encephalitis. Patient um, unfortunately passed away. CSF was negative though in that patient. Again, those tests were not really well validated, but um, currently no labs locally or send out we're using or offering CSF testing for SARS-CoV-2. So. Thanks. Good to know, thank you. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't know Dr. Manapali was back there because I would have been really nervous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, ju I just have one comment. Uh, when I heard about this case from Dr. Vimori and uh, Dr. Austin, 
that reminded me of a case and uh, I think in neurology a lot of people know about that patient H&M, Henry Molasson maybe. So that was a patient who has interactable seizures and he had bilateral uh, temporal lobectomy. And he was exactly like this. He was having, you talk to him and in few seconds he'll forget what you just talked to him. Then you have to repeat the same thing again. again. So this bilateral involvement of mesial temporal lobes, of course, that's the, the area of memory, so amygdala, hippocampus, parahippocampal gyrus. So that explains why he was having these memory uh, symptoms. But my only thing is why uh, in the EEG, we only saw, saw the seizures from coming from the left side, right? No, actually, there were some intermittent tem right temporal seizures as well. They were? Mostly okay. left, but rare right temporal seizures as well. Okay, yeah, so yeah. That, that explains yeah. bilateral. Okay, all right. That's a great presentation. Thank you. I just wanted to know what happened after the hospitalization. Do we have any follow-ups? How did he do? Does I've, I've looked in Epic, and I don't think he went to his follow-up appointments. He might have found <laughs> physicians elsewhere. As, <laughs> I was really thinking of calling him and find out. And of course, got busy. I didn't. I didn't get a chance to talk to the family. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> I have approach avoidance. Like I kind of want to call him and see how things are going, but I'm afraid he'll ask me the same question over and over again and again. If I. So last TB or syphilis was indifferent. I mean, VDRL was. VDRL in the test was maybe, negative. but maybe yes. I didn't. Look. I think we. Yeah, I think yeah. we checked. Yeah. Okay. Could of course, TB do... we did not. Uh, I'm not sure whether we have. Uh, Dr. Mane Pali made a number, but with I don't temporal. Know. No, I think with TB. Sorry. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Uh, with TB, you you get a basal meningitis, a basilar involvement. There's there's granulomas. There's uh, a lot and of pus in the base was, of the brain. Your cranial yeah. nerves are affected. Uh, it's very very different. I've seen a lot of TB. Okay. Um, but also very CSF, you see the glucose. Yeah, White blood cells, oh, yeah. those are not. The so suspicion was low. Yeah, yeah the protein is usually really high. I know thousand, we had a couple yeah. of cases. Of that. Yeah, the, the glucose can be very low. Yeah. I, I, one comment, great presentation, by the way. It's my first few days here. But um, one comment is uh, viral illnesses are triggers for autoimmune encephalitis outside of uh, things. So, for example, you can have HSV encephalitis and then a few months later, develop NMD encephalitis. Yeah. So there are um, uh, situations where, you know, in COVID, like you said, could have triggered um, an autoimmune encephalitis. Yeah, in sure. Patient, so so actually, we, with some residents, and uh, some of them may recall, we have seen uh, very interesting patients since I came in here. One is an LGI-1 encephalitis. His presentation was rapid cognitive decline. That's it. And looking back, uh, he had three admissions with the sodiums of 110, 120, 130, hyponatremia from SIADH. And uh, so LGI-1 encephalitis can cause facio-brachiodystonic seizures, mostly of the facial pulling and the hand. So nonspecific seizures sometimes even can be missed in an EEG. And uh, guess what? The panel came back as an LGI-1 uh, encephalitis. Which, which causes all the three, cognitive decline, hyponatremia, and then the seizures, and he improved with IVIG. That we, I was able to follow up on that. So yeah, there's so many. And there's one more we have like here, same thing with new onset status epilepticus, uh, GABA B positivity, and uh, CT abdomen pelvis showed a possible lung tumor. So no other symptoms otherwise. So they can present way. so many autoimmunants of NMDA. They will have uh, psychiatric manifestations to begin with, and then they'll have seizures early in the course. But those are the well-recognized autoimmune encephalitis, NMDA, CASPAR, and the VGCC, and the LGI-1. And those I've, are those uh, autoantibodies against those uh, transport proteins that uh -huh. uh, Dr. Yeah. Al-Rubai had mentioned yeah. earlier on. I have one more follow-up question. With the temporal lobe enhancement, even if COVID test is positive, did you guys continue acyclovir? Um, because the HSV PCR sensitivity is 98%, not 100%. So right, that's what we always get from ID. So I, by the time we got the HSV... <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so, a little bit of a rivalry going on there, yeah. So, by the time we got the second piece here, uh, I think it's uh, eight days, seven or eight days. Um, again, based on some of the case reports, again, it's not any entire analysis. If the sensitivity is too high, we can, we, we maybe we shouldn't, but there were some reports where that, as I don't know if you were here, there were some reports where 20th date can be positive. So that's why we ended up treating him for full course, right? And his yeah, most reason is not, his kidneys are fine. So, so just the risk versus benefits. Dr. Martin, I'm Lauren. So um, I just wanted to be your wing person. And I know when we were talking about this, maybe going back to the initial differentials and discussing stroke as a differential um, in this lecture for some stroke education. So, so are you saying stroke can present with seizures? Correct, or just at the initial, before the imaging, just off that initial base, we obviously have ruled that out, but just as something um, at the beginning as a differential with the alteration and ruling out stroke. Yeah, so definitely stroke should be ruled out for this age group because that's one of the most common causes of focal epilepsies. Uh, but as you said, imaging ruled out and like mostly exam, no focal findings on the exam, CAT scan was negative. And of course, I think we were able to get the MRI within two days, so it was negative. So, but yes, definitely, stroke is still is a leading cause of the focal epilepsy in that age group. And, and I think, Lauren, you made a good point because <clears throat> we did have a case that came in front of us where there was a bad outcome where the patient had relatively nonspecific symptoms and they somehow went down a, a heart attack pathway, but the patient was presenting with decreased level of consciousness um, and there was a slight delay in doing the CT angiogram, and the patient did have um, a, a basal or artery uh, thrombosis that was causing um, symptoms that were not typical, like unilateral uh, weakness, um, and an opportunity was potentially missed, you know, to to treat that. So, so yeah, that's a good point that we want to make sure that we're ruling out the things that we can treat, and, and especially when it's the time is brain type idea. Uh, right up front. Any other questions or comments? We did have um, one comment from online. Dr. Rio said you guys did a fabulous job. So thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Those payments to Dr. Rio's paid off. I'm hoping that you guys out